So, few words that I learned is, Buen dia, como esta? Good morning, how are you? But the, but the, the best one I learned is this, bendiciones, blessings to you. Every year, uh, we always hear about the Passion Week. And every year, there is that phrase that is almost familiar with us. It's the seven last words of Jesus. Did you know that the, all the seven last words of Jesus were all taken from the book of Psalms? What's interesting is that everything that happened in the crucifixion event during the Passion Week of Jesus in the mouth of Golgotha were all recorded in Psalm 22. And what's interesting here is that when we talk about Matthew chapter 5, the blessings of Jesus, blessed is the poor in spirit, blessed those that are persecuted or insulted for righteousness' sake, it all goes back to Psalm 22. So today I want to talk to you about the kingdom of God, Jesus' authority, and how does this affect our lives? This, there's a small detail during the crucifixion where the Roman soldiers roll dice in order to determine who will determine who will own the robe of Jesus Christ. This robe of Jesus Christ symbolizes something. What does it mean? Today I want to talk to you about what it means. It has something to do with the authority of Jesus, but what it means in our lives as kingdom citizens. Let's pick up our series from 1 Samuel 24. I was going through the sermon last week and I picked up three things from the sermon. If you are here, you know what I'm talking about. I picked up heaven, hell, and beer. Were you here? Yes? Now, 1 Samuel 24. This has nothing to do with heaven, hell, or beer. It's something to do with the kingdom of God. Now, one of the most celebrated characters in the Bible is named David. Every time you call your husband or your wife beloved, you're calling David. Because the meaning of the word beloved is David in Hebrew. You realize that? So when I call someone beloved, I'm calling David. You're my David. You're my beloved. Now, at this point in time, David was a beloved. But in Samuel 24, he's not a beloved. Because he was running away from Saul. He is being threatened by Saul. And at this point in the story, Samuel 24, he was hiding in mountains in valleys and caves, particularly in caves. So if you go through the Bible and you read the book of Psalms and you come across the words refuge, stronghold, uh, comfort, and justice, that is David hiding in one of the spots, either the caves or the mountains. But why is he hiding in the first place? The Bible said that Saul wants to kill him. Saul was then the king. And remember, this happened when he fought Goliath, the giant, and he won. And after that, he became an, an overnight celebrity. But also the, the day before, sorry, the day after, he became a wanted. He became wanted for his life. So he started running away from Saul. Saul saw him as a threat to the crown. And so he pursued David relentlessly. In this particular chapter, David was in a cave somewhere at the edge of the Dead Sea, if you're familiar with the topography. Saul was in pursuit together with 3,000 men. And as you know, when you go camping, it's going to be a challenge when you do job number two. Correct? Anyone go camping? Yes. Job number two is different. It's hard. So imagine 3,000 soldiers with Saul. He's going to have to find somewhere a nice spot where he can concentrate to do that. You know what I mean? Job number two. So he chose a cave. But what he didn't know was that David was inside that cave. And so imagine Saul was concentrating in the middle of intense concentration, and David was back there inside the cave and his men talking about how to assassinate the king. 
When Saul finished up, he stood up and David showed up. There's something that David did that made the difference here. Let me read to you verse 4 in 1 Samuel 24. Instead of assassinating Saul, he did something important. It says, And the men of David said to him, Here's the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. And David arose and stealthily cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Instead of killing Saul, he simply cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Let me pause there for a second because this is a teaching lesson. Question is, how hard is it for David to restrain himself from killing Saul when he had this perfect opportunity? What kind of a man is David who would give mercy instead of revenge when his life is on the line? I'm asking this because the normal thing to do for any man is to retaliate, to get even. That's what we do. That's what all people do, retaliate. What, we, what, what do we say in the corporate world? The corporate world is dog-eat-dog dog world. The corporate life is about survival and getting even. But it's not normal to restrain yourself from getting even. In, in fact, it takes a lot of courage to hold back. It takes a lot of restraint to hold back and not get even. Let me tell you this. Holding back is a sign of maturity and righteousness. Let me say that again. Holding back is a sign of maturity and righteousness. That is what Jesus taught us. Let me read to you Matthew 5. Verse 38 says, You have heard that it was said, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him also. Now, before you even think of offering your other cheek, know that this is a figure of speech. You don't literally have to turn your other cheek. Let me demonstrate it for you. For me, if you're in front of me, for me to slap you with my right hand on your right cheek, this one is impossible. I will have to do backhand slap. Can you imagine what I'm doing? So if I will slap you with a backhand slap, in the Jewish culture, this is an insult. In fact, this carries double insult. To be slapped, not like that, that's good slap, but that one would sound like a slap, a right, a backhand slap. This is an insult for the Jewish culture. What's interesting here is that what Jesus is saying is that offering the other cheek is hyperbole for not retaliating. Offering your other cheek means do not get even when you are insulted for the sake of Christ. The concept of this one is predicated on a long Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, where Jesus is saying that all his teachings were about the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom of God, those who are involved in the kingdom of God must operate on a certain ethic of righteousness and godliness. Retaliation is not one of them. Retaliation is not the way of righteousness. If you are a Christian and you're reading Matthew chapter 5 and you read about a tooth for a tooth and eye for an eye, offer your other cheek, what Jesus is saying is, do not retaliate. Let me unpack this a little bit more. In Jewish culture, again, for you to be slapped on the right cheek with the right hand, it has to be a backhand. It's an insult. It's a double insult. So when, when Jesus was teaching this, he was teaching this in the context of persecution. Remember Matthew chapter 5, and he was saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the this and that. And then at the very end, he said, blessed if you are insulted, persecuted, or mocked for righteousness' sake. 
The condition for you to be insulted is for righteousness sake. Nothing else. So, that means, if you are insulted for righteousness sake or for your faith, then you are blessed. The right response is not to retaliate. So that means if Jesus is teaching his disciples, including us, that if we are mocked, persecuted, or insulted, not because of our bad behavior, we are blessed. If you're insulted or mocked or persecuted because you're a hard person of your bad behavior, then it doesn't count. You're not blessed. You're only blessed on the condition that you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. But sometimes we have to remember that we forget that we are representing Jesus. So sometimes we get even. Raise a hand if you're getting even. Of course, don't raise a hand. <laughs> but we try to justify what we do, and we say to ourselves, we're trying to teach the other guy a lesson. That's why I'm doing it. Not true. The truth is that we want to retaliate. You see, it takes more than patience not to swear when someone, when someone cuts you off on the road. It takes a lot of restraint to do nothing when someone gives you a finger. Jesus said, love your enemies. That is what Jesus taught us. Anyone doing that, love your enemies? Pastor, I love my wife. Sometimes she's my enemy. Well, Jesus taught us to love our enemies. And he's teaching us that Gentiles do the normal thing. What's, what do the Gentiles do? When they're harmed, when they're hurt, they retaliate. But Jesus is saying you have to be different. You have to be different. You have to reflect what God or who God is. And at the end of Matthew chapter 5, he gives us the reason why we have to reflect who God is. In Matthew 5, 48, he said, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The reason why we have to be different as Christians is because God is perfect. What does perfect mean? Perfect doesn't mean that you're not making mistakes anymore. Perfect doesn't mean you're spotless. You're not committing sin anymore. Perfect here means righteous. Righteous means we represent the righteous God. And therefore, if we represent the righteous God, non-retaliation or not getting even is a perfect way to do it. If we believe that we live in the kingdom of God, we have to choose restraint. Let me tell you this. We decide not to retaliate. Instead, we choose to endure because representing Jesus is more important than satisfying our ego. Do I hear an amen to that? It's easy to satisfy our ego. It's easy to blurt out and to get even. But it's hard to restrain. But that restraint reflects the righteousness of God. And David perfectly demonstrated this restraint when he did not kill Saul. In fact, he had the opportunity. He did not. Instead, he caught the corner of the king's robe. And here is Saul's response to him. Verse 17. Saul said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. See this. Non-retaliation is righteousness. This is a clear indication of who David really was. You see, Jesus taught us, when he quoted Leviticus 24, the phrase, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You don't find it in the New Testament. You find it in Leviticus 24. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. When I was in the Philippines, someone asked me when I preached on this, someone asked me if it applies to him because he was wearing full denture. I told him this is figure of speech. <laughs> figure of speech. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But seriously, the true application of the law was really about preventing retaliation to be able for us to reflect 
the character of God, which is righteousness. Not only David, but Jesus also demonstrated this perfectly when he was arrested and he was brought to the Sanhedrin. And the high priest was asking him, interrogating him, what do you teach? Who are you? Are you the Messiah? And Jesus replied by saying, why do you ask me? Ask the people who heard about me. And then the Bible said one of the officers in the Sanhedrin strike him, or better yet, in other translations, slapped him. What kind of slap is that? The backhand slap. Because they were trying to provoke Jesus to retaliate, which Jesus did not. And you may say, Pastor, I'm not Jesus. I don't have patience and endurance. To that I would say, you're not Jesus, but you represent Jesus. You're not Jesus, but you bear his name. That's why you're called Christians. You see, people judge us by what we do and how we do it, not by what we say or what we believe. People pay close attention to how we live our lives, not to what we say. Listen, what you do and how you do things will show not just what you believe, but also who you live for. Let me say that again. What you do and how you do things will show not just what you believe, but also who you live for. The more important testimony that we have is when we show people who we live for. It is Jesus. And that's the reason why we study the Bible. Because the Bible is the resource that will help us navigate Christian life. How do you live in this life without getting even? The Bible explains. This book is our guidebook. Without this book, we will be blind to the will of God. You see, both hand in hand, the reading the Bible and prayer goes hand in hand. On one hand, we read the Bible, we know the will of God. When we pray, we come to our knees and we say, we accept the will of God. May your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's how we pray. So reading your Bible and praying goes hand in hand. It will help us navigate our Christian life. So here's the thing. If the Bible tells us, how to navigate the will of God. How should we read the Bible? What's the proper way to read the Bible? But here's the thing. The Bible does not just dump information on us. It's not just a, a, a hundred list of information what to do or how to, how to obey God. It's not as straightforward as a manual. In fact, there are stories, there are poems, there are prophecies in the Bible. We have to sift through all those. And then we have to pick clues and hints and allusions. And when we get them together, put them together in one, we have a bigger picture of what the Bible is talking about God. But I would suspect that you and I are having a hard time reading the Bible. Anyone can relate. I am having a hard time reading the Bible and understanding. Yes? Yes? Why is it hard to understand the Bible? I can offer you one reason why it's hard to understand the Bible. It's because when you read the Bible, you're busy thinking about your problems and not objectively wanting to know what God is saying. See, our problem is that when we go through the Bible, we're looking for solutions, how to overcome fear, how to overcome worry, how to overcome stress, how to look for signs if we are praying for something. When we read the Bible, we read the Bible like a fortune cookie. Anyone knows fortune cookie? When you go to a Chinese restaurant, you crack it open, and there's a small piece of paper that's on inside it, and, there's a word, and there are words on it that tells you your luck. You're a Virgo today. You will be lucky if you meet someone so-and-so. 
I think sometimes we read the Bible like that. Here's how the Christian reads their Bible. We open our Bible randomly, and you raise your, your hand, and you say, God, show me the money. And then you point to the Bible. And randomly, you would expect that that was God, what God is telling you, that verse. What if you, you open the Bible to the book of Matthew, and you point to Jesus, Judas hanged himself? You're not going to hang yourself, right? That's not the proper way to read the Bible. There are other ways to read the Bible also that is wrong, I think. There's this, there are Christians who think of the Bible as food supplements. A verse a day keeps the doctor away. You just read the verse without the context. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. For God so loved the world, he gave his only... But we're not really looking at the big picture so that we don't understand really what's being said in the Bible. We have to see the context. And speaking of that, if we do not understand the context, then we will be lost. When you read the Bible, here's one good advice. Ask the question, what's the point? What is the point of the passage? What is the point? What is God saying? What's the point? Because when you ask that, you will not miss the detail. And there's one detail here where David cut the corner of the king's robe. And so we asked, what does it mean? What's the point? You see, if we ask that question, we will have to go back to 1 Samuel chapter 15, where Samuel confronted King Saul. What's happening? Samuel came over, confronted Saul, and he said, you have disobeyed God, and therefore God has rejected you from being king. And then he turned away. And as he turned away, Saul grabbed the corner of Samuel's robe, and it ripped. And Samuel turned back again, and he said, today, God has stripped away the kingdom and rule from you, and will be given to someone else. This gesture is an omen. And Saul knew that it will be given to someone. He, doesn't, he just doesn't know who. But right now, what David did to Saul was what Samuel prophesied back in Samuel chapter 15. See, David did not know that he was fulfilling a prophecy. Samuel prophesied that the kingdom will be stripped away from Saul. What's interesting here is the gestures and small details that talk about more than just simple things, random things. The question is, how does this point to the event of Jesus Christ? How is this connected to the authority of Jesus Christ? You see, the robe that Jesus used, or the king's, king's uh, robes were not just uniform. When King Charles of England was crowned king this year, he was wearing a golden robe. It was very special. It was worn by some of his predecessors. And it completes his regalia. It symbolizes his authority as king. And so think about Jesus. If Jesus is king of the Jews, according to the inscription, he was wearing a robe and it was taken away from him. And the soldiers had to roll dice to be able to know who's going to own that piece of robe. What's going to happen to Jesus' authority? I'd like to tuck it in for a minute about authority and robe and think about Psalm 22. Now, to those of you who are not familiar, Psalm 22 was written by David. David wrote this psalm, and it became prophetic and messianic in nature. You see, in our culture, when we want to sing a song and we forget the title, what we do is we sing the opening line, correct? You would either hum it or sing the opening line. The original Bible does not have chapters and verses. No chapters and verses whatsoever. And so if an Israelite wants to sing a psalm, he would recite the opening line. 
And so on the cross, Jesus recited the opening line. And guess what? Psalm 22. Let me read this to you. He said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? All the while, people thought that Jesus was just mumbling words. But he was quoting from Scripture. And you would think, how can Jesus quote Scriptures while in agony? He was reciting Psalm 22 because he was fulfilling a prophecy. Psalm 22 is a prophecy about the suffering Messiah. And he was there at the cross. He was telling the people, this is me. You know what? From the beginning of his ministry to the very end at the cross, people were asking, give us a sign. Are you the Messiah? Give us a sign. And Jesus at the cross recited the opening line as if telling people, this is your sign. You don't need anything. I'm telling you, I am the Messiah. This is your sign. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All you have to do is to go through Psalm 22. Let me show you verse 7 and 8. He says, All who seek me mock me, and they make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Now, the gospel writers would always, would always put the phrase, this is to fulfill the scriptures. And, and Matthew describe the reaction of the people exactly how some chapter 7 and 8 would describe the suffering servant. They mock me and they wag their heads. What is wagging your heads? You know, if you're thinking of Indian, that's not wagging your heads. Say, this is okay. That's not wagging. In Jewish culture, wagging is... It's a disgust. It's a gesture of disgust. So imagine people at the foot of the cross looking at Jesus and mocking him. You're the son of God? What happened? Are you really the son of God? You multiply bread, you stop the storm, you walk on water? What's up? They mocked Jesus. Psalm 22, verse 12. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surrounding me. They open their mouths at me like ravening a roaring lion. Now, this is kind of weird, I would say. But what is this strong bulls of Bashan? Now, if you remember the story, after the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, they built a golden cow in the wilderness and worshipped it. The golden cow. So fast forward, they built the kingdom. The kingdom was split, divided, and the rebel king, Jeroboam, rebuilt the worship of the golden cow in Samaria, in the region of Bashan. This is what Prophet Amos said. Amos 4.1 Hear these words, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. See, the cows, the bulls of Bashan, represents the false gods in the time of Jesus. They represent the idols that people worship in the time of Jesus. Bashan is the territory of the enemy. You remember Jesus in Caesarea Philippi two weeks before he was crucified? He went to Caesarea Philippi, and he was at the mouth of a cave. It's called the Gates of Hell, where he said, Upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He was literally picking a fight because he was at the foot of the cave. 
mouth of the cave, the gates of hell. The gates of hell, Caesarea Philippi, is in the region of Bashan. It's the territory of the enemy. So what this means is that when Jesus Christ was hanging on the cross, it's not only the people who tried to crucify him, the evil forces are converging in there, mocking Jesus as well, and saying, where's your, where's your daddy now? You're abandoned by your daddy. Where are the angels to help you? You are all alone. You are stripped of your authority. Look at your robe. They're being taken away from you by the Roman soldiers. Verse 16. For dogs encompass me, company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. That's Psalm 22. See, everywhere you look at the story of David, there was no event in the story of David where he was crucified both his hands and feet or pierced his hands and feet. There was none. Then therefore, this is a prophecy. He must be talking about someone else. And this is hundreds of years ago before Jesus came. Hundreds of years apart from David. Psalm 17. He said, I count all my bones. They stare me and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. There are several films regarding the passion of Jesus Christ, and this small detail is always in the film. This is where the Roman soldiers play casino. Who will own the robe of Jesus Christ? See, criminals are stripped naked when they are hanged on the cross. What you see in the sculptures and paintings, Jesus was, you know, he had a, a towel over his private part. But the real crucifixion is an execution that, is, that the criminal is stripped naked, literally naked. Because this is not just an execution. This is a humiliation. Crucifixion is the most agonizing, slow way to die. And Jesus had it. But what was his robe, what does his robe symbolize? It symbolizes authority. Listen to Psalm 27, verse 28. It says, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of nations will worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nation. The psalm ended with worship. The psalm ended with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It started with that. But it ended with worship. There's one king, and the king will rule over the nations. How is it connected to Jesus? It is because when Jesus was resurrected from the dead he was on the mount and he said to the disciples all authority has been given to me it's back on him it's given back to him you see he's, he was stripped of his robe in the crucifixion but in resurrection he was given back his authority this authority in heaven and earth was the same thing that he was talking about in the lord's prayer your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it's in heaven but what it means is that all authority in heaven and on earth were given back to Jesus because he's the true king. Let me give you a bigger picture. When he died, there was a Roman centurion that looked upon the cross and he said, truly, this was the son of God. Does it mean anything? Of course it means something. Son of God is the title of the emperor. Son of God is a title of divinity. What the Roman centurion is saying is, is that the Roman emperor is not the real son of God. The real king is Jesus Christ. Thomas was one of the most skeptic disciples. 
Even when the disciples told him, Jesus is resurrected from the dead, Thomas would not believe. He would say, unless I see it with my own eyes, I would not believe. So Jesus appeared in person. And then when Jesus appeared in person, Thomas said, my Lord and my God. What does it mean? My Lord and my God in Latin is Dominus et Deus. Dominus et Deus are both titles of the Roman emperor. They are titles of divinity. What Thomas is saying is that the Roman emperor is not God. He does not rule. It's Jesus. Both the Roman centurion and Thomas are saying it's not the Roman emperor. You see, Rome was the whole world in that time. So when the Roman emperor rules the Roman empire, he rules the world. But because the Roman emperor rules the earth, and he has the title of divinity, he rules both the heaven and the earth. In fact, Romans pray to the Roman emperor. What this means is that Jesus has claimed that authority both in heaven and on earth. The Roman emperor is not the true king. There's only one king, that's Jesus Christ. I want to think about this, about Rome and, and authority. Listen to John in his vision of Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 16. He said, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. He sounds like a king. His eyes are like flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. Diadems are crowns. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. It means he came from war. And the name by which he is called by the word of God. The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on a white horse. That means he is the king. And from his mouth comes sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. The rod of iron is scepter. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the rod of God Almighty. And watch this. And on his robe, and on his thigh, and has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What does it mean, King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Among all the empires and the countries and the kingdoms, there's only one King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus Christ is on top of every king, of every power, of every dominion, both in heaven and on earth. You see, there's only one character in the Bible that is declared to hold that title. There's only one who claim the title King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Someone who doesn't have a four-year term. Someone who doesn't need to be elected. Someone who will execute true justice and righteousness. And that king, according to the Bible, was crucified. That king fought and he won over death. That king fought and resurrected from the dead. That king fought and ascended to heaven and promised someday soon he will come back for us. He's someone with absolute power and authority, both in heaven and earth. His name is Jesus. And it's Jesus is who we represent. Every time we walk out the streets, every time we drive our car, every time we walk out of our house, we represent Jesus because we're called Christians. And as citizens of the kingdom, we have to live in such a way that the world will know by looking at our lives that Jesus is the true king. It's called testimony. So last week, Kel and I went to Cuba, as he said, what we have been advocating for. Cuba is still a communist country, but people are hungry for God. And coming back at the immigration, the officer asked me a lot of things. He held me for 20 minutes. Others just go through a minute or two. I was held for 20 minutes. He won't accept 
that I came from a mission in Cuba, and it kept asking me for names. Now, I, I kid you not, I don't look like James Bond. I don't look like a double agent, okay? I'm not, I'm, I'm not employed by the communist. But he won't believe what I say. He kept asking me, what's the name of the church? And I keep saying, this is the name of the church. He won't believe me. He even asked me for photos as evidence that I came from there. You see, if this is what it means to live for Jesus, then I don't mind going through it again next year. What does it mean to suffer and be persecuted or be mocked for the sake of righteousness, to live for Jesus? Lord willing, there will be another opportunity next year, or maybe sometime soon, end of this year. If God is leading you to come with us, please come. Volunteer your time and your skills. If God is leading you to give, we are creating a missions fund so we can pull our resources so that we can send help to the people in Cuba. Mike Kel is not kidding when he said that $1 is equivalent to 200 Cuban peso. That, a surgeon, I talked to a surgeon there, a surgeon gets only 4,000 pesos. That's not, that's not even $50. I mean, come on. People need help. And here we are. We are so blessed. And I promise you, if you volunteer your time, your skills, your resources, your life will be changed. See, I think the real challenge is not really to acquire a PhD, although it's tough. I know, I know, it's hard to acquire a PhD. Or maybe the real challenge is not to make sure that we have a fat retirement waiting for us. The real challenge is not really to survive I-95 going to Miami. That's, that's really not the challenge. The real challenge is how to live our lives for Jesus. The real challenge is to stop living your life, creating your own plans, building your own future, looking forward to retirement. Retirement is not the end. There's more to life than retirement. The real challenge of living under the authority of Jesus Christ is us waking up every day and asking ourselves, what am I going to do today to advance the kingdom of God? And when we sleep tonight, we have one thing in mind as well. What am I going to do tomorrow to advance the kingdom of God? You see, if we truly believe that we are under the authority of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the true king, we have to act it out. We have to show it, not just with our messages, with our tongues, with our lips, but also with our hands. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege of knowing you as king. Thank you for helping us understand that your authority far exceeds the four quarters of this theater, that you are the king of both the heavens and the earth, that you have authority over the heavens and the earth, that there's no barrier of any country or any system of governance. Everything is under you. You are king, and we are employed in your kingdom. Father, give us a bigger vision. Help us to see how we can be of service to you. Help us to see how we can, as the moment we step out of our house, how we can be of service to the king. Inspire us once again. And show us so is the path of righteousness. In Jesus' name.